there's a lot that goes behind sales. You, you just can't go out and sell without understanding what it takes for that sale to be equitable. It, it made me do all the, the calculations on what our costs were on these specifications and from a sales standpoint and, and, and what we needed to buy to make those work and to understand the financing and the covenants and why borrowing bases are so important and you know what level of, of money we needed in a revolver. And I was able to hire a CFO and all of that as well that has you know been invaluable through all of these processes. So going through that really put me on a path of saying, I can now have that service conversation where I understand what we can do better than our competitor. From a stability standpoint, from a service standpoint, from a quality standpoint, we were able to build a scale and we were able to build a process that is just better. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey, guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. I have a good friend of mine, Jeff Warren, who's the president and CEO of South Georgia Pecan Company. Uh, for those that don't know, my family has been in the pecan business for decades, and we met when Jeff expanded his business into the El Paso area. He's got an incredible story of taking over a family business that was doing roughly $50 million in revenue, and during his 10 years of being there has grown it to over $300 million in revenue and continues to uh, build an incredible company at a young age. They are now the largest nut sheller in the world. And today we talk a lot about the pecan business and how it works, not only domestically, but globally. We talk about Jeff's story and his impact on the business. And we just talk a lot about a lot of the, the business nuance that is in an industry that is relatively small, filled with people that have been in the industry forever and um, you know serve a great need. So thank you for continuing to join me on this journey, and I hope you enjoy this discussion. Jeff Warren, welcome to the show today. Chris Powers, thanks for having me on the show today. I am excited about this conversation. Let's kick it off with... Uh, kind of your story growing up and kind of the journey you were on that kind of led you to the position that you're at today at Southern Georgia Pecan. So born and raised in Valdosta, Georgia. Valdosta is really the heart of, of pecan country. It uh, is far enough south that, that we don't get a lot of freezes in the springtime, which can really impact the crop. And I was born and raised just around pecans and, and obviously with my family being in the process and business, it was always kind of inherent that I would be involved to some degree. Uh, I didn't, you know, have some great intuition or type of roadmap presented to me when I was young to say, you know, this is what you're going to do to end up as, as president and CEO of the company and have multiple locations and, all different types of retail and, and, and wholesale distribution networks and all that kind of stuff. But when I was growing up, I, I was I was always in the plant and I always really, really liked equipment. And, you know, I got to work with all different types of people and personalities and got to see the, the good and bad and all of that. And as I really started to come into my own in, in high school, was was when I really started getting into the the actual understanding of the processing side of of this business and not just kind of being around while other people were doing stuff and handing somebody a ranch or or something like that. So that was really when I when I started to decide that there might be something here for me to to really do something with. And through high school was in a work release type program where, you know, I'd get out of school at like lunchtime junior year and come to work and senior year get out at 
you know, maybe like nine o'clock even come to work. And it was just awesome, man. I mean, it was, it was one of those things that, you know, I was working with the guys in the plant and I felt like I had their respect and they had mine. And candidly, it was one of those things where I didn't even feel like I needed to go to college, but that was, that was really a, a firm requirement for my dad for me to, to come in at any executive level to the company and, and rightfully so, you know, with looking back on it, but I went to college here at Valdosta state and I had originally planned to, to get a degree in mechanical engineering. There's a, there's a, a bridge program from Valdosta state to Georgia tech. And it didn't take me long to figure out that I couldn't pass calculus. <laughs> I think it was actually even pre-calculus and that that was probably not going to be my, my, major i i changed or or at least i I started taking some business classes and and really fell in love with that that you know i'd I'd always been on the plant side and the operation side of the company and to have business classes that challenged me from a curriculum standpoint where i could fill you know the the gaps with actual stuff that was happening at the company was just awesome and it, it really made all of the things that we did on the operations side pretty tangible from a financial and accounting standpoint. And so, you know, having that base in operations and then, you know, being basically presented with all of this, you know, curriculum that explained the, the basis for, for business and being able to apply all the actual business, thing, you know, information that was happening here daily to those principles was, was awesome. And it very quickly got my interest on, on, you know, the business side of our company. So I wouldn't say that I worked consistently through college. I did come in during season and all that type of stuff and would still go on trips out West to Texas and, and all over, you know, like I had my whole life growing up. And, but when I graduated college, that was finally when, I came into the company in sales and just worked my way through the company from there. But professionally, everything started with sales post-graduating college. So paint a picture for me. And you, you talked about working in the plant. Paint a picture of me about what your family's business did when you were growing up and then what, what the company looked like when you arrived. And then we'll kind of talk about what's changed since you got there, but what, what did the company do when you got there and, and what did it look like as far as size and scale uh, when you yeah. got there? Dude, we were a really regional company. I mean, I, I thought that as a child, I mean, I thought that, I mean, yeah, I would say even through high school, I mean, I thought we were a really, really big pecan company and we, we've always been a, a, a major player you know, in, in the industry. But I mean, we source primarily from, you know, central Texas East and we were kind of a, a low input cost or a low, you know, procurement cost manufacturer that focused on basically ingredient pecan piece sales. We, we did have some retail accounts, dealt with, but they were majority more regional like Publix or Winn-Dixie or somebody like that. It was a very seasonal business. It was majority Q4, you know, during, you know, the holidays when bacon is big and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you would have huge spikes in direct labor and, you know, you'd have all hands on deck for four months a year. And I mean, I remember, Chris, even up until, you know, 2010 type timeframe, I mean, we would shell out of pecans in Georgia, which was the only plant we had for a long time in like August. It was, it was really planning, you know, when you wanted to shell out and all your contracts would be fulfilled. And, you know, the plant would be down until new crops started being harvested in October. I can't even like, I'd, I'd have a panic attack if that happened. That, that couldn't happen now. I mean, it, it's not even in the, in the cards for us to, to ever shut down the plant. So you know, it was just a completely different ball game. I mean, it was, it was very regional. It was very seasonal. You know, you had people come on and I mean, you had entire departments dissolve after the harvest season and after our peak shipping season. So, you know, people floated around a good bit from a management standpoint and wore a bunch of different hats. And, 
And, um, you know, when we were a smaller company, that was, that was able to be done. And y'all weren't growers of pecans. Y'all were buying from farmers and then shelling the pecans. Yeah. So, and we still are situated that way. So we, we do not grow any pecans growing up. I always wanted to be on the growing side and, and, and have that, that bolt on side to make it more vertically integrated and pecans. A lot of people don't know this, but there is no subsidy on pecans and, and, and like a government subsidy or any type of, of like farmer type financing, like there is in almonds or walnuts. It's all, you have it to sell when you harvest it and I buy it for you from you for cash that day. And, you know, a load of pecans, I mean, a, a, a 45,000 load of pecans say for $2 a, pi- a pound. I mean, you can easily have a hundred grand in, in one, you know, 45,000 pound load. Right. And, and, uh, you know, when you're processing 30 to 80 million pounds of pecans a year, it's, it's an extreme amount of capital in a very short time frame, And then obviously you're writing your contracts, your annual contracts with your customers as you know, your, your procurement has taken place and your, your shipments through the months and, and those receivables are, are then what is, what is coming back in to, to basically lower that line of credit or that revolver that you buy your inventory with. So, it's a really, really intense time frame there. A lot of money going out. You know, with that amount of money going out and us being just a family enterprise, you know, we don't have any any outside money. It's all us with a personal relationship with our with our bank and you know, a pretty traditional set of covenant covenances in place that basically say what we can do within, you know, what. And it didn't really make sense for us to go out and start putting um, even more capital into something like an orchard that could potentially inhibit us from being able to be nimble with cash. Right. Um, so that was one of the best lessons my dad taught me was at the end of the day, you, you've got to be able to be nimble on the procurement market. And the only way to do that is to have, you know, the, the access to capital. Why are there no sub government subsidies for pecans, but there are for other nuts? You know, there's a lot of questions around that, and there's a, a certain school of thought actually out in the industry right now that that we should have a, uh, a a loan program similar to peanuts, where you know farmers basically get a, a just right off the cuff at harvest amount of cash, um, and then they have a contract with a processor such as myself, and um, you know it takes the burden off of me, and it gives um, the farmer cash at the time of harvest and you know, the farmer and I will have a contract and basically I'll redeem that contract as I need to pull the product in. And that's one school of thought. The issue is we are such a small crop. I mean, people don't realize this, but on a kernel basis, meaning, you know, what you actually edible production on an annual basis. I mean, we're 30 times smaller than almonds and, maybe 12, 10 to 12 times smaller than the walnut. So we don't really get the attention of those types of programs through the federal government. Um, and frankly, walnuts and almonds don't even do that. All, almonds don't even get government subsidies. They just have a very, very good transaction model between the processors and the handlers where the handler will will just give them that upfront capital or the farmer is well-financed enough that the farmer will actually determine with the handler, meaning me being the handler processor, when to sell and what to sell for and all that type of stuff. And we're working towards that. I would say we are working towards that as a, as a company in the industry. We're probably doing more of that right now out West and in the East as of this year. I wouldn't even say there's another company doing it. So we're, we're the only people doing it and, and we're doing a lot of it. And our grower support base is really enjoying it because if I'm going to sell a pound of pecans today, then I have to buy a pound of pecans today and vice versa. If I'm going to buy it today, I have to sell it. So, you know, 
if the farmer needs his money right then, then I have to sell it right then. And that doesn't give me an ability to be patient on the market to actually see, is the crop going to come in shorter? Is it going to be, you know, larger? Do I need to market now? Do I need to, you know, wait a little bit? Maybe I could make a more informed decision, not just because I have to pay cash for it today, but, you know, ideally it's all on average. We, we sell through the year, we sell through the harvest and, and um, that's responsible to both our customers as well as the farmers. And everybody walks away with, with, a, with a smile on their face. So we're going to get to the, the day you showed up. But since we're already talking about kind of how it works, I just want to continue on here for a little bit. So sure. what, when do you make a – are your contracts with growers like a multi-year contract? Can you just walk me through the dynamics of like what a, how a contract is set up, how long they last, you know, what happens if the crop comes in short? Like what do the contracts spell out and how do they, you know, how do they work? Well, in our industry right now, the contracts are pretty fluid because we really want to be respect, respectful to the farmer and really have them not be intimidated by it. These contracts in like peanut shelling, for instance, they, they have a good bit of teeth to them. And what I mean by teeth is, you know, at the end of the day, if, if a farmer just decided they had a smaller crop that year and, and the, the price was going through the roof on the the China inshell market, for instance. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said this year, we don't want to deliver our pounds to the plant because we can get a larger, you know, price per pound for going to the China inshell market than we can shipping this product to you and you turning it into a kernel and selling it to Sam's Club, for instance. Right. You know, at the end of the day, that's a pound of pecans that I had been depending on coming to that plant to market, to, to be able to, you know, use for my overhead and my supply and everything else that I'm carrying year in and year out. And we're just not there yet in the industry. If I, I feel like if I was to start going out with with that type of, of verbiage to the to the industry, that it would probably be a little intimidating to the group. Of, of grower base and I, i'm not trying to push anybody away or make anybody feel like they are just you know absolutely tied to it now you know what i what i feel like will happen is over time as people recognize the value that these things are bringing the farmers themselves that have seen the the, the benefit of this whole program will actually want the teeth on them so that at the end of the day, the other farmers that are committing can't end up making a poor decision that would impact the ones that are already a part of it. So if I had 20 million pounds committed and 10 million pounds of that 20 million pounds just decided we don't want to go to that this year, well, it, it could really impact in a very short time frame the efficiency of the process and frankly put us having to go out to the market to find raw material to fill those gaps and, and, you know, not allow me to do my job um, to the best of the ability impacting that 10 million pound grower support that, that stayed with it. So, you know, it's, it's not just for me, it's for, it's for the responsibility of, of the, the others that are involved in it as well. But if I, if I'm a farmer and, and you said committed 20 million pounds, am I signing like at what point am I signing on the dotted line that you are getting my 20 million pounds regardless of what happens in the China market? Like when do you know that you've got, you know, product that's secured, signed, sealed, deliver? Are these happening on kind of handshake agreements? Like how far from the day they're going to deliver you pecans do you know that you're getting those pecans and you can be sure of it? Yeah, right now, um, you know, there's some guys that, that have committed to me for two years, but I mean, it's all verbal agreements you know, right now. And, oh, really? And, uh, yeah. I mean, and, and it, it's a, it's a really small industry. And I mean, the majority of these farmers have known me or my family my entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I know their kids now and it, it's, it's just a, a very strong tight bond there. And a, a, a lot of trust is shared and you, you're not going to do it. If you're a grower or you're a sheller, you're, you're not going to do something bad two years in a row. I mean, you know, if you're a sheller and you, you don't treat somebody well, 
you're not going to have a good experience the next year from a grower support standpoint. And if you're a grower and you don't treat a sheller well, you know, there's risk in that as well, at not getting attention or the attention that you want from the, the, uh, the shelling industry. So it'd be one thing if it was a, a giant industry. And I, I think we will get more formal over time, but just as it sits right now where we're trying to get this program going, it's, it's a lot more on a handshake. What's considered pecan season? What months? Well, it, it, you know, it's becoming more and more global as we, as we speak. So, you know, what used to be the West and the East, meaning, you know, basically um, Van Horn, Fort Stockton area West was the West and, and East was, you know, basically the Dallas area East. It was, it was kind of, you know, two different times. So you would have Georgia get going very earliest, the end of September, beginning of October, and it would kind of move west from there. Um, you know, the San Antonio, Dallas, um, Oklahoma type area would would get going a little later than that. It would it would start to happen more so in that November time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, and then out west, Van Horn, Fort Stockton, El Paso, Las Cruces, all the way to California, they have shuck split on the tree and they let the nut dry on the tree. Whereas other parts of the world, meaning east mainly, green harvest and they actually dry the pecans in, in big dryers in the plants. So the the harvest out west has traditionally always been later. You know, I would say that everybody targets to try to have harvest done by the end of the of the year, meaning Jan one type time frame. But what's taking place in our industry is the the pecan has become global very, very quick. So the United States was the was the major player forever. Um, Mexico always had you know, pecans and, and had a good pecan crop. But as of lately, the the Mexican pecan crop has actually gotten larger than um, the United States pecan crop. And almost simultaneously, the South African pecan crop has, has started getting a lot larger as well. And when I say larger, I mean relative to what it was. So, you know, call the the South African pecan crop plus or minus 40 million pounds on any given year. Um, I would say the Mexican crop is probably in the neighborhood of 300 to 350 million pounds on any given year. And I would say that the American pecan crop or the domestic pecan crop is hovering and hovered somewhere in that 300 million pound range. So with South Africa being on the South side of the equator, you may be scratching your head saying, you know, well, I mean, 50 million pounds or 40 million pounds doesn't sound like that much, but they have no domestic processing demand. Thanksgiving and the fall of the year and all that kind of stuff, what, where we see a huge pickup in demand here from a consumption standpoint, that doesn't exist in South Africa. So with them being on the south side of the equator and having an exact opposite harvesting time frame than we do, China has really dominated that market. And with them dominating that market, what has come with that is a, is a huge hedge for China as it moves into this, let's call it Western pecan crop from a globe standpoint, meaning Mexico and the United States. So what has started to happen now, Mexico is harvesting almost on the same time frame as Georgia. They're, they're doing a lot of, of this early harvesting uh, or green harvesting, as it's called in the industry, like Georgia is. And so China hedging out of South Africa is now coming west to Mexico and the United States and really making Mexico and, Uni- and the United States compete for that residual Chinese demand that South Africa doesn't feel. Yep. So we're working real hard now to, to try to you know, understand what we can do better to to not allow, you know, old market marketing tendencies from a China standpoint or a, a you know processing standpoint make people make bad decisions on the market affecting the entire industry. Right. And just real quick is 
isn't China relatively, isn't the pecan being introduced into their diet relatively new, like in the last, I don't know, decade or two decades, or have they always yeah. had pecans? No, that, that's, that's exactly right. And China, on average, brings in around 112 million pounds of pecans a year. That, that, that's their consumption. And Chris, the thing that is, that is so um, deceiving about the Chinese demand is that, you know, because it's been in the last two decades, to you and I, that seems like forever. I mean, you know, you and I were 15 years old two decades ago. Yeah. And to the farmers that are the generation before us, it's like really new, right? I mean, a, a lot of these guys lived through BC days, like before China, you know, yep. where there was no China. And then the advent of that market really just changed the face of this industry for a long time. And now, you know, with all this alternative supply, it's changing the face of it again um, because they're finding that there are there are much larger cost elasticity markets that can supply them with these, you know, raw materials that they demand. At, at better prices and it's making that market much more fluid around their new year and and it's really being disruptive in the in the supply market so the day that you pick up a uh a pound of pecans or a million pounds of pecans yeah w- what happens uh at your business from the day you pick them up to the day they kind of hit the the retail market how does shelling work obviously y'all are cracking the nuts and getting ready but i have a few questions just on what it looks like when the pecans are in your hands before they go out to uh, your final customer yeah so the the first thing we do is we we bring the pecans in and and we basically run a quality test on those pecans so we can settle with the farmer you know what that consists of that you have a one pound sample of in-shell pecans and we crack it out and we get all the edible meat out of it and you have half a pound of edible meat then that we say that in shell yields 50 percent okay so half a pound of edible compared to one pound of in shell means you have 50 percent that you can use 50 percent you can't use does that make sense yep so we transact on a on a what we call a per point basis very very similar to how you talk about the market being up or down 500 points or whatever we we call let's just use three dollars per point okay so three dollars per point means that we're paying three dollars for that half a pound that's inside that one pound of in shell so in reality we're paying a dollar fifty per pound for the in shell but because it yields 50%, we're actually paying $3 per point, okay, for the yield percent. Does that Got make it. sense? Yep. And how do you measure quality? The amount of meat in there or the, the, how ripe it is or how it tastes? It, it, it all has to do with, with um, you know, there's, there's a couple of different scales. There's number one meat, number two meat. Really, that's um, a couple of industry terms like fancy and choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there's, if there's, rot in the in the sample then you know and it's one percent or whatever the gross with rot may have been 51 percent, but there's one percent rot so it it nets out at 50 percent. got it basically we just pay off of that that edible yield so right now if it's a cash type grower then we're selling in cash and and you know just a couple of days and then if it's a it's a contract grower then you know, all that just goes into the system. And, you know, we try to obviously market a, um, a healthy percentage of that as we get through um, the new year. And, and you know, we're trying to get in that 85 to 90, maybe 75 at the very low end percent covered, depending on what's going on in the market for that grower base so that you know, they're not taking too much risk, but then our customers aren't taking too much risk either. You know, our, our customers need to be able to, if there's a decline in the market, they need to be able to react to that and stay competitive from a retail standpoint. Um, but the farmer also doesn't need to be subject to a dramatic amount of pullback either, you know? Right. So the, it, it's really a large amount of responsibility at that point for from a from a marketing standpoint both to the customer and the grower 
but from there, the, the pecans go into cold storage. We have um, plastic bins in the east that hold a thousand pounds each that, you know, there'll be millions and millions of pounds of these in, in our, our cold storage. And we hold the pecans at, at a freezing temperature for, you know, the duration until we're pulling those out to be processed. So they're held in, in, the, in the freezers, they're pulled out to be tempered. Um, to get them up to room temperature or ambient temperature and um, they're fed into our plant from there and you know the pecans are are basically sized and go into a uh, pasteurization system where you know you basically have a, a demising wall where you know one side is is raw where the pecans are going into the pasteurization system and the pecans come out of that pasteurization system and go through the wall and the the other side of the wall is ready to eat. So that's where all of the cracking and and the really finishing type processing takes place along with any type of retail packaging or bulk packaging or oil roasting for ice cream or, you know, a, a roasted and salted nut mix or, you know, butter or whatever we're doing that is uh, that is value added. So at that point, we, we really don't want to hold finished goods inventory for more than a month. I mean, we, we, we want to be turning that, in, that, that inventory over quick. So how long it sits in cold storage for what, like a week or a month or. Well, on the, on the raw material side, on the in shell side, the product would at the longest sit in there for a year. Um, oh, wow. so in the shell. Yeah. Um, the product will, will sit for a year. So remember, you know, when we write these annual contracts, with these large customers, they're shipping over the course of a 12 month period. So we're first in first out on inventory and we live and die by what we sold and us having the raw material to cover those sales at a price that is, is obviously equitable through the entire year. So we have to be able to hold that inventory for the entire year as well. On the shelling side, once it's in the plant, uh, how much of that is done by machines and how much of it is done? Like what do humans do? Do Is it all now machines or is there a combination of both? It, it, there's definitely a combination of both now. I, I would say that I don't care if you're in pecan shelling or, you know, making widgets in today's environment in the United States, that it's probably increasingly more mechanical and automated. Yep. But it's a combination of both right now. And then a question on what sets the market? Is it the demand that year? Or is it the actual supply that year? If it was a bad year or bad crop, like how, how does the, why does the market fluctuate so much? It's a combination of, of all of that. So it's demand, it's the size of the crop, it's the amount of, you know, carryover or residual supply from the previous year that could possibly come, come over. But, you know, part of it also is buyer sentiment. You know, I mean, if, if a buyer can get, you know, one handler to fold to a price that may be below the market and, you know, that that gets out, that that price was, was offered that day, then it could start a trend, you know, around that. And I don't think that's really healthy. Uh, I, you know, I think that that can artificially set the market for a, a really small time frame and can actually end up hurting the customer base because they, you know, it gets people thinking that they can buy at those levels, but then the supply is not there to buy that level and it can pop beyond that. You know, it can, you know, maybe, maybe the market is, is, uh, is 490 today, but somebody's pressing for 470. And at the end of the day, they, you know, get somebody to cover a load at 470 and they keep on trying to bid at that 470 level, but the market's steadily moving up and they're just you know not able to to participate in the average moving up and and before they know it the the market is 10 or 15 cents beyond where it was and they have been trying to buy at this artificially low level yep and then what what causes a bad crop season is it mainly driven by just uh, bad weather and maybe a drought or are there other reasons why you might have a bad season well you know it's out west it can it can Definitely be a drought. It seems like we're in a perpetual drought out west. But you know, the snowpack up in up in Colorado is what feeds the the entire Elephant Butte water district. You know, and then in the east, 
um, hurricanes, too much water. You know, it's it's uh, it's it's the complete inverse. In the east, we you know can get we can get the same rain in three days that you guys get in a year out west. You know, and so it's just having you know too much rain and 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 wind at the same time really is the is the recipe for disaster over here. On the finished product, uh, you mentioned like, you know, all the different, it goes to Sam's Club, you might be making ice cream. Are y'all blending it all and making the product in-house and then shipping it based on the requirements of your customer? Or are you just delivering, you know, pecans to them and then they're putting it all together and doing it on their end? In 99.9% of of our applications, we, we are meeting a specification that they need um, to be able to make whatever product they are making in their facility. Got it. Um, now we do oil roasting in house. We do dry roasting in house. We make butter in house, and we make a uh, a grain free granola in house. But really, uh, all of the the butter and the grain free granola that that is really just kind of grassroots type branded new product type of exploration products, not you know, something is being done to an extremely large scale like the rest of our business. This might be a weird question, but if somebody has like a peanut allergy, does that mean they're allergic to all nuts or is there a, is, is there a pecan allergy or is it just kind of peanuts? So peanuts are a legume. And so they're, they're, uh, there's a specific allergy for that. And, you know, that's, that's why, you know, alternative nut butter, for instance, has been such a big deal. And, in our plant, it's it's extremely big. I mean, we can't have any peanuts um, anywhere in our plants. And you know, when we run almonds or we run walnuts, just from a packing standpoint, we'll uh, sometimes we'll bring truckload quantities of almonds and walnuts from out west, and and uh, you know, finished good type things, and just bag them for for distribution to some of our customers on the pecan side. Yep. And there's a very strict regiment of allergen cleanups and i mean it, it's a really really serious deal in our space so to answer your question there is a specific con allergen but then there's a tree nut allergen as well got it all right let's go back to uh now we'll we'll get into some fun stuff just on your journey through the company so uh it's a family business how long had it been around uh in your family when you arrived in your sales role the first day so my dad started working here in 1970. My, my dad was was adopted from California, and he and his adopted family moved here when when uh, when he was 17 years old. So he was adopted when he was a baby, but um, moved here when when he was 17. And 1970 started working here. Bought the company in 1983, and obviously I was born in '85. So you know, by the time I graduated college in 2008, that had been 48 years. I'm yeah. sorry, 38 years. You said it's a small you said it's a small industry. Are people like getting out of college and going into this industry or is it kind of, you know, if you were born into it, that's your road into it or are there a lot of new kind of entrants into into the industry? You know, in the last 10 years, I would say there's there's been a lot of of more institutional type money, ADM, a subsidiary of them called Golden Peanut and Tree Nut have gotten in and, and, uh, there's been some private equity starting to get in, but Chris, the, the majority of people that are in this business have, have been in it for a long time. There, there's not a whole lot of people that are grassroots getting into it. It's an intense business, man. I mean, you know, there's, there's no real roadmap to success. Um, you know, you kind of got to take it as it comes and, you know, there's, there's nobody to call to say, you know, come build my pecan. Hey, I want to get the pecan business. Come build me a pecan plant. I want it to do this amount of pounds. And, you know, it, it, that just doesn't exist. So, you know, there's not a large barrier to entry because, you know, people are resistant to allowing people in. There's just a large barrier to entry because there's a lot of unknowns. Right. All right. So you show up in sales and I'm looking at my notes. The company was doing roughly, call it 50 million a year in revenue. Yeah. Uh, since you've been there, you've obviously risen to your current role, and y'all are doing 300 million plus a year now. And I know you've had yeah. a huge part of that. So let's just kind of start on that journey. So you show up in sales. 
what were kind of the big leaps you took and the the changes that you made in the business. And then I want to talk a little bit about family dynamics as well along the way. Sure. So obviously it was a great recession in 2008. You know, I mean, that literally graduated college and, and came to work down here and it was a, a doom and gloom type environment. You know, I mean, it was my dad didn't know if, you know, people would eat pecans through through that whole event, you know, that that lasted a long time, you know, and with us being a, uh, a very cash intense, as I explained earlier, business where, you know, large revolvers are required at times and and all that type of stuff, you know, you're really only as good as your financial institution, meaning your bank. And so when I came to work down here, my dad, it sounds cliche, but he was like, you know, I want to be a hundred million dollar company and I want you to sell Sam's Club. Those were the two things he told me. And um, I'll never forget where I was standing when he told me that. And that first year, I think the only customer I sold was the fresh market. And it was really, really hard for me to put on the sales hat, you know, and I'm not a golfer. Like I didn't, I didn't grow up being able to, to really schmooze people. I, I just, you know, I'd rather just kind of tell you what I can offer and provide a service and, you know, it's the best possible quality we can do. I don't want to bad mouth my competitor and tell you why my product is, is, is better than theirs if it's not. And coming out of college, what my idea of sales was, um, I did not fit the mold. And that first year was extremely painful for me. Looking back through emails from that time frame, it was it was it's brutal for me to look back at now. But um, when 2009 rolled around, the fall of 2009, it was getting to the point where banks were were locking down so much on pecan companies because you know a lot a lot of these companies have have bounced around in profitability. Like they'll make money some years, they won't the other years. You know it's. It's just kind of a constant ebb and flow um, and lots of volatility. So we were under the same scrutiny. But all of a sudden, I, I really started getting um, lots of inquiries coming in um, asking if we could supply some of these larger type customers. Well, you know, one customer in particular was was pressing really hard. And, and uh, I told my dad, I was like, you know, I want to go to Bentonville. To, to meet with these people. And, and so I did. And, and, um, you know, it was a, a fantastic meeting. And I mean, it was, I felt, you know, really, really positive about it. And I'd given them a price indication and they said that price indication would work. And the volume was, you know, probably one of our largest contracts to date. And it was a, you know, really inflated per pound market at the time. So it was, it was a lot of money. And I mean, it would frankly get us pretty close to that, uh, you know, hundred million dollar mark combined with a couple of others that were, that were pressing. And so I was like, man, this is awesome. You know, year two, I'm, I'm able to do some business in Bentonville. And, and, and at the same time, I'm, I'm, I'm reaching this, you know, gross sales number that my dad has kind of charged me with. Well, when I came back and, and I was kind of getting all this stuff situated and I was, I was showing him what I had the opportunity to sell he told me, he was like, Jeff, we can't do this. And I was like, defeated. I was like, what do you mean we can't do this? And, and he said, we don't, we don't have the capital to, to buy the raw material, you know? And if we can't buy the raw material, then we can't sell it. Like, it's just a risk we can't take. And so, you know, I was like, well, let's get the bank to come for a meeting and, and, and have this conversation. I mean, this is pretty easy to see. You know, this is where we can buy the raw material. This is where I can sell it. And there's profit in this. And, and so we did. And um, I'll never forget the bank um, told us, they, they said, you know, you need to seek external sources of financing. And growing up, I'd been in, you know, a few bank meetings and I just always kept my mouth shut. And um, I'll never forget, I was like, you know, I don't even know what that means. I, I don't know what external sources of financing means. We've always, you know, we've always made money and, and uh, you know, you always get what you want from us. And we've never been outside of covenant. And, all that kind of stuff. And, and they were just too heavily invested on the real estate side. And, and frankly, there was nothing they could do. It wasn't, didn't have anything to do with us. It was that, you know, they were just too heavily, heavily leveraged on the, 
on the real estate side. So growing up, my brother-in-law had always taken me to these Georgia Agribusiness Council meetings. And, you know, I was around um, the governor at the time, Sonny Perdue, and, and uh, had just gotten to meet a lot of his staff. And Sonny had, uh, had recently gotten out of business, uh, or I'm sorry, got out of office and um, started a business in, in Atlanta with a few others. And he had always told me, you know, if I need anything to come see him. So I called him and drove up to Atlanta and, you know, basically explained this entire scenario to him and, you know, asked him if he could help me. And um, that's when we got introduced to Rabo Agrifinance. They were a Dutch bank and they were trying to expand their middle market. And we fell into that category. And, you know, within a few weeks, we had the entire financing facility in place that we needed. We were able to write all those contracts, um, buy all the, the, the raw material. And, I mean, frankly, it was it was like a rocket ship from there for until now. I mean, it's just, it, it, we have really, really grown, but at a really, really fast rate. And, you know, the, the biggest thing that that did for me was it, it, uh, it made me see that sales, there's a lot that goes behind sales. You, you just can't go out and sell without understanding what it takes for that sale to be equitable, you know? And so, it, it made me do all the the calculations on what our costs were on these specifications and from a sales standpoint and, and, and what we needed to buy to make those work and, and uh, you know, to understand the financing and the covenants and why borrowing bases are so important and, you know, what level of, of money we needed in a revolver. And I was able to hire a CFO and, and, and all of that as well that has, you know, been invaluable through all of these processes. So going through that really put me on a path of saying, you know, okay, I can now have that service conversation where I understand what we can do better than our competitor, you know, and from a stability standpoint, from a service standpoint, from a quality standpoint, we were able to build a scale and we were able to build a process that is just better. It's better quality, it's better value. And, and, uh, you know, when you, when you add all those things, but I built the right team around me during all of that, that, that I was really trying to keep that from happening. We were growing at such a fast rate that we were having to use a ton of contract manufacturing to basically keep up with the demand. So it had gotten to the point where we were contract manufacturing as much as we were manufacturing. And that was just a place that I did not feel comfortable. And that's when I moved out west and met with your uncle and built that plant and started out the first year shelling 12 million pounds and then 25 million pounds. And then last year, 50 million pounds, you know, and well, you, it, it, you, you sped through that a little bit. So you, you decided to go to El Paso and build a plant there, which, yeah. you know, didn't think could be done or it wasn't easy to, to make that decision happen, but you did it anyway. Right. Yeah, I mean it, it. It was it was really really difficult from a family standpoint, and rightfully so, dude. I mean, looking back on it, I mean I was I was sitting here telling my dad that you know I wanted to move to El Paso, Texas, and invest about you know five or six million dollars of my family's money and buy twelve million pounds of pecans. You know that's another you know call it thirty million bucks that year right there. And, you know, I'm going to buy all of the pecans ahead of time before the plants ever even done. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm asking you to trust me that I'm going to pull this off. Your uncle, frankly, laughed at me the first time that I, he's like, you're not going to get 12 million pounds <laughs> in this. Bag. You know, um, that, that, that's impossible. But, you know, I convinced him to, I think, sell me probably every pecan he bought that year. We went through a lot of, of long days. Um, with finding the right people and and all that kind of stuff to run that operation. But, you know, what I learned through all of that is that, you know, creating the right culture and being dedicated to that, no matter what, is is way easier than changing an existing culture, you know. And I was able to do that. And, man, it's just been a beautiful thing, you know. And once that, you know, job of mine was done, 
um, out there and we found out Cassie was pregnant with twins. Um, and it was time for me to come home. You know, it was, I mean, by that time I was hanging out with your sister and brother-in-law and mountain biking and, and, and hunting more than I was doing anything. And, and, uh, I think that was God's way of giving me a little vacation before the twins came and, and it was time to come back to Georgia and change a, a hundred year culture, you know, and, and revamp everything here. But it was, uh, it was just an unbelievable journey. I can't, you know, thinking back on that, all the good times and all the people I met and, and all that, I wouldn't change it for anything. So when did you become, uh, the president and CEO? Like when did, when did the baton get passed? Dude, to be honest, it was pretty, it was pretty informal. Like, you know, titles around here have been pretty informal, Mm -hmm. um, for, for a long time. And so, I mean, I think I stayed vice president of the company all the way through the time I was in El Paso and, and I really wasn't serving in a, in a president role. You know, maybe I was, but I was, I was a lot more, I was a lot more on the op side and the sales side, you know, on a, on a more, um, micro level than, than really, I feel like a president would be. And so when I came back and, and I'd hired and kind of passed the baton of true plant manager to that Western plant manager. And we started having the conversation here at the level of, Hey, we need to hire a vice president of operations to, to really, um, start to manage these two plants so that, you know, I'm not putting out fires at these two plants and I can, you know, focus on managing the company and relieving my dad of some of his tasks were when I became president. And that was, I guess, somewhere around two years ago. And then, about a year ago, you know, dad and I had, um, had a lot of conversation and there was a lot that I wanted to still do in Georgia if I was going to do, and I was going to continue to, um, take the risk and, and, and do the things I were going to, I was going to do, then I needed to be responsible for that risk. And, you know, frankly, my dad was not making a lot of the decisions down here anymore. And, um, he should not be personally or held personally responsible for those if he's not. And, so, you know, he came off of the, the personal guarantee and, and I, I took on the full thing and became CEO at, at that time. And so, you know, we've made all those changes in Georgia now and um, we just continue to become more efficient over here and and uh, out west as well. I mean, we, you know, just bought 40 acres of, of land in, in uh, East El Paso between, I guess, the 375 loop and, and Favens and we're you know, leveling dirt there now and building our, you know, lifetime home out there now. So meaning lifetime processing facility. So it's never ending seemingly, dude, you know, you, you can't stop. You, you got to keep going. I have a couple more business questions and then we'll bring it home with some personal questions. But the first one is just, you know, what are maybe the top two or three things? We don't have to go through everything, but two or three things that stood out to you when you when you think about changing a hundred year old culture. How do you like? What are the two or three big buckets of things that that you think that your work will impact to kind of change that culture? Was it was it obvious the things that needed to change, or like how did you think about it? It's obvious, but how to change it is not obvious. Yeah, and in every employee, there's assets and there's liabilities in me in you, there are assets and there's liabilities. There's things that you and I are good at and there's things that you and I aren't good at. And it's really just finding the employees that, that have, you know, the right assets. And that's the hardest thing, Chris, is that, you know, everybody's good at something. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's just finding those, those people that are good at what you need them to be good at. And that's the hardest, that's the hardest thing is that, you know, at the end of the day, it, it, it's really hard to, to, to let go of people or replace people that, you know, are, are pretty good at some stuff, but it's just not what you need them to be good at right then to be competitive. So I would say, you know, obviously the right person, once you make those changes, you've got to stay true to them, you know, and, and change is, change is not a comfortable thing. It's not. And it doesn't, you know, on in theory and, and all this stuff, you, as a, as a business owner and as a CEO of a, of a company now, I am very, very aggressive. 
as it as it relates to you know attacking cost and attacking efficiency and and uh and being sustainable and all those types of things and and uh you know when you're when you're planning when you're planning all this stuff out it feels so right and it feels so comfortable but when you start implementing those changes it does not like and 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 if you are really making change then nothing should be the same right like um, your accounting department is like, uh, this doesn't look right, or this isn't the same KPI or same metric that you know we were using, or this is the same one, and this is not relevant anymore. Like we have to start tracking this other one. That is not comfortable. So I would say embracing that and staying true to that. And and then the other one is obviously doing the the research. You know, don't. I was trying to 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 push probably too hard to get are building our processing facility done out West, um, you know, before tax code changes or, you know, is still going to go even higher than still is now with the infrastructure bill and, and all this stuff. And, you know, I, I was, you know, trying to design this plant out West extremely hard. And, and at the end of the day, I called my CFO last night and I was like, man, I just feel like we're pushing this. I, I just feel like we're pushing it. So, you know, being patient and and uh, acknowledging your instincts and and weighing on your your management team and giving them the freedom to speak truly with you know, or speak honestly with you, but but doing something with that, you know, not just just uh, asking and then doing what you want to do, but actually embracing what your team tells you to do and making changes based off of that. So, you know, do the research, be patient find the right assets and the right people for what you need them to do and, and embracing the change as you go through it. Do you have an end goal? You know, where, where are you taking this? Uh, or do you even know you're just enjoying the ride right now? You know, being the second generation in, in this business, it's always, you know, one of those things that you, that, you, that I think about my sons, you know, coming into the business or one of them or, you know, whatever. But I mean, I would love to see that happen. And I, I would love to, you know, build something here that, that is better. I'm not saying my dad did it wrong, but you know, um, whoever had it before him, I think he probably tried to make it better than what it was. And I'm trying to make it better than what it was. And they'll try to make it better than what I, what I made it, you know? And that's what I would, would, would obviously like to see is a, is a third generation. But, you know, you and I talked about this the other day. It said, when, when you have a family, I mean, I have, you know, sisters that are shareholders and a, and a dad that is a shareholder. And when I'm both the shareholder and the CEO of the company, I have to be responsible to those shareholders. If something came along that, you know, was one plus one equals three and, and, you know, it was right to do by the shareholders and I didn't see any more value potential in the business, then um, obviously there would be a lot to consider there. But you know, that is not our goal. Our, our goal as a company is to continue to get better and continue to evolve and keep processing pecans. And are there, and you kind of had mentioned there are private equity and institutional players starting to enter the market or have they, have they not entered yet? They have. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, they started entering in that 2012 type timeframe and th- they hired some good industry people, you know, and, 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 uh, I think that, you know, all of that is built to sell again. You know, they they bought to sell. Yeah. Um, that was always transparent. I'm not, you know, and that's listen. That's that's you know a model, but um, it's just not our model. A couple personal ones, and then we'll we'll bring her home. I know you're busy. Sure. Do you have after doing 110 of these episodes? It's become apparent to me that there's usually maybe a certain instance or something that happens early on in a kid's life uh, that maybe changes the direction of, you know, where they are today. So my question is, do you have a a childhood experience or something that you kind of remember vividly that has shaped who you are today? Maybe it was, you know, hanging out in the the plants as a young kid or, you know, was there something that happened early on that maybe changed the direction of your life? Probably the most significant thing from that, that, you know, relative to our conversation that I'll, that I'll remember is Jasper Sanfilippo. I mean, Sanfilippo is, is traded on the 
I think it's the New York Stock Exchange now. Um, Jasper was a was an innovator through and through in this industry, and and um, I'll never forget going to his plant when I was. I mean, this was when I was probably like thirteen years old, twelve or thirteen years old, and I'd gone out west with with a guy that worked for us. Even I mean that young in in Selma. I'll never forget. Um, I mean, Jasper was a big guy and, and uh, I mean, towered over me at that age. And um, he had this unbelievable plan. I mean, it was, it was just like walking into a, you know, like Charlie's chocolate factory or something. And he came up and shook my ha- hand and he just said, I want you to know your dad is my, is my biggest competitor. You know, that just meant the world to me the way that he did it. He, was a big guy, but it, you could tell that he was, he was really, really nice. And he, I just looking back on it now, it just means the world to me that he did that, you know, because here was this, you know, huge plant and this unbelievable, you know, engineering marvel and, and all that type of stuff. And, um, for him to come up to me and tell me that, um, it just gave me a lot of pride, you know, from a, from a really young age to, to look at this as something, probably as much as much emotional as financial that we have a lot of pride in what we do and um we work real hard and and uh, that's what my dad did and and uh you know it just it just really impacted me when he did that that's awesome i love it uh what's the best advice you've ever received the best advice i've ever received is 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 probably when you have anxiety about something, when you, when you, you know, know there's something that's bothering you, um, don't, don't run from it. You know, I mean, I, I don't care who's listening to this right, right now, you know, they've, they've had a situation where, um, they didn't want to dig into a problem or, you know, it, it was a, it was a problem that was just persisting that, that, um, they, they kind of managed or whatever. And the older I've gotten and the more mature I've gotten, I just like to dig into those, especially even if they were my decision, you know, and that's, that's, that, that's the heart of it right there is, you know, a lot of the time when there are decisions, um, whether they're yours at Fort Capital or mine at South Georgia Pecan and, you know, things aren't going quite well, we want to try to be defensive towards those decisions or support them to a fault. And I think that, you know, that the best advice or that, you know, the, the best example that I've gotten of, the right thing to do is, is, um, just to be objective towards, towards all decisions and don't wait until it's too late. Don't manage that problem. Um, and, until, you know, it actually becomes a, a, um, a, an issue, you know, you can, you can always go into it and there's always a path to success. Um, it's a matter of you embracing that, that mindset of not having to be right for yourself, but being right for the company. I love it. All right, one more. Yep. If you owned a billboard on the busiest highway in the country and you could put anything on that billboard for the world to see as they pass by every day, what would you have them put on? What would you put on it? Eat more pecans. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right, man. This has been uh this has been awesome. Your story's badass and Yeah, I mean I appreciate it and to be able to go in here and talk about it from a from a micro standpoint, I feel like I'm kind of vomited at the mouth when you would ask me these questions, but you know, it it's uh there's a lot to say um when when the questions don't get asked often. So I, I appreciate you giving me your ear. Yeah, man. My family's been in the industry, as you know, for a long, long, long time. And I, I honestly can say I probably learned more listening to you today in this one hour than I have, you know, in 33, 34 years on this planet. So, well, and, and, and honestly, Chris, and I don't mean just to keep going on, but I mean, dude, I mean, your granddad, you know, I mean, and, and your uncle, I mean, that story is unbelievable, yep. you know, and coming from where they came from and, and, uh, you know, I don't know all the intricacies of the story, but I mean, I've heard it enough from 40,000 feet to, and, you know, it's an unbelievable one in and of itself of what your family's done. It's so, a cool story. We're, we're not, we're not brothers. We're not brothers. <laughs> all right, buddy. Have a good one. Take care. Bye. 
Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.